tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Omen, starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, David Warner, Billy Whitelaw, Patrick Troughton, and Harvey Spencer Stevens. Directed by Richard Donner, released in 1976 on a budget of $2.8 million, grossed almost $61 million at the box office, and won Jerry Goldsmith a Best Academy Award for Original Score. So, Nick, The Omen, you have a very specific reason for picking this one out, don't you? You know, we kind of talk about our cursed times right now because we're doing this during the lockdown and everything like that, that kind of to do um, like a cursed movie retrospective. And what I mean by cursed movies would be movies that had a lot of weird stuff that either happened before production, during production, or after production – and became known as, you know, kind of movies that maybe there was some type of supernatural or demonic type of happenings that were going on during the making of it. Of course, it normally ties more into horror movies. I don't know if something like Legally Blonde had some cursed moments in there, but it may have. I mean, we don't know. I mean, I don't know personally, but it's just something that kind of, you know, I think it kind of is interesting to a lot of people is like these like strange happenings and you know, trying to look at it is like, you know, is there a logical reason for it or is it just coincidence or was there maybe something a little bit, you know, you know, on the macabre side here. So it's kind of like, you know, I think it's just something kind of fun to talk about and kind of, you know, these are, you know, the movies that we're going to be doing are, you know, pretty much quintessential classics and everything like that, but they have a very interesting, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff. And that's the whole thing too, is I think so many of these movies have been discussed to death as far because there's such staples in the horror landscape that it'd be kind of fun to, you know, talk about maybe some of the cursed stuff with this movie as well to kind of give it a new spin. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that the omen falls into that category of movies with like Rosemary's baby and the exorcist and a lot of other movies from the seventies in particular that were real heavy into the, the satanic end of things like that was just the dawn of that. No wonder we had the satanic panic in the eighties. Everybody grew up watching, you know, all that kind of stuff in the sixties and the seventies. And I remember hearing about this movie. I think the first time I saw anything of it was on one of those, I don't know, terror in the aisles kind of comp shows or something. And I remember my dad or my mother saying, Oh yeah, that's really scary. And then I'm pretty sure I saw this on, I don't know, cable or something at some point, probably with my grandmother who I watched a lot of this kind of stuff with. Cause this was right up her alley in terms of like the thriller and, you know, horror stuff that she would go for more than like the Freddie and Jason stuff that I was into. Um, but I really don't remember much about this movie until I watched it when I was, I was definitely in college and maybe afterward before I really sat down and gave this a true run. And then I watched it again when that 2006 remake came out, because I was really interested in that. I didn't see that in theaters, but I did watch it on rental and it had been a while since I've, I'd come back to the omen. So I, I thought, Oh, you know what? This sounds like a lot of fun to do as the kickoff to our cursed movie trilogy. And then you told me something that I didn't know all these years of talking about movies with you. You told me this is your favorite horror movie. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think it's, (laughs) 
God, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell, gonna say something here a little personal about my background with this movie since you talk, brought up your uh, background with it is. This is a movie that I saw at a very, very young age, and the circumstances of me watching it couldn't be more funny, at least now. It wasn't funny at the time, but it was a Sunday that I was supposed to be going to church, you know, aka Sunday school when I was a young kid. And for whatever reason, I didn't end up going. I don't know if it was because I was sick or just ended up just, you know, being a brat and refusing to go. But I stayed home with my dad. And guess what was on TV? We watched The Omen as opposed to going to church. So very interesting, uh, you know, way, way, way of, uh, you know, framing this movie. And what had happened was the next week when I went to Sunday school, I had told the entire Sunday school class about this movie, which led to me getting kicked out of Sunday school. So that was kind of an interesting thing to happen with this movie. So it's something I always look back at and go, hmm, I got kind of an interesting uh, personal experience with this. <laughs> yeah, by the way, whoever programmed this movie to run on Sunday morning, that that that's messed up. Like somebody's having some fun with that. I, I that is funny. I you know, I grew up going to church and things. I'm not Catholic or anything like that. So I don't I guess satanic um takeover has never been something that I gave a lot of credence to because the churches I grew up in read the stories of possession in the Bible as sort of things that happened at that time, but they're not things that happen now. So you don't really have to worry about that anymore because that was all before Christ's you know, death and resurrection. And you don't have to get into you know theology seminary here. But I never grew up with like a real healthy fear of that. What I grew up with a fear of were people who thought they could get closer to Satan or the devil or whatever by doing really depraved and macabre things. And that people have always scared me more than anything supernatural. Um, I think people and animals and, you know, things like that, like your jaws and grizzly and, you know, all that kind of good stuff, Godzilla, (laughs) maybe, uh, depending on what day it was. But yeah, I, I, I don't know that I ever got the, the fear of this. And I'm going to ask you for a lot of experience too, because Nick, you've got a son and I mean, he's growing up now, but he's, you know, was, was little at one point or another. And I've been around like my mm-hmm. little nieces and nephews, but they're, they're older now too. So they're kind of a little bit self-sustaining and run away from me as much as they used to. But when they were little and I would be left alone with them, my fear was like, Oh, one of these kids is going to like bolt and I'm not going to like what happened, you know? And so <laughs> a lot of that parental fear I think is very real and still works. The thing I remember most about this movie though, was that Gregory Pe- was in it and that he looked so much older than the woman he was playing opposite of. And I looked it up. She was 40 when they made this movie and he was 60. So like they, okay. there was a 20 year difference between them. Now she did not look 40. He looked every bit of 60. I think I've always seen Gregory Peck as this older man because I think he's always played older. Yeah. He's definitely got that kind of like Patrick Stewart vibe to him where it's like, I think you were just born 50 years old and then you stayed like between 50 and 60 for like a good 40 years. You know, it's like, you just, it's like one of those things where you're like super aging and then you stop. So yeah, this was actually, I think like the first like Gregory Peck movie I've ever seen. And you know, like I said, you know, this is one of my favorite horror movies, but one of the things we'll get into with Gregory Peck is he's one of those guys that's almost like Will Smith where it's like kind of just playing yourself in every single movie that you're in. So, I mean, and that he may be different in other movies, but the Gregory Peck movies that I have seen. So I just think it's uh, one of those things where um, with him, I, I don't know why exactly he got casted in there because, you know, it is it is a stark age difference between him and his wife. But well, I guess, you know, he's kind of the name guy here. I mean, I don't even think really Richard Donner was much of a name back then when he did this. So I guess it's kind of the name that brings you in a little bit because it's like, OK, it's going to have some clout because it's got uh, Gregory Peck in it. 
Well, Donner was well known as a good director, but he hadn't broken out of the scene and been this smash director. I mean, two years after this, he would have Superman, which yeah. really landed him and minted him. And I mean, he's worked for decades uh, or up until his, his end. But I, th- I think Superman is the thing that made him famous. But what got him the Superman gig, oddly enough, and this is kind of twisted, is this movie. And the way he directed it and put it together. And we'll talk about that as we get into it. But uh, yeah, there, there is something about Gregory Peck. He comes from a lot of movie stars of like James Stewart and Gary Cooper and Cary Grant and Spencer Tracy and these, you know, particularly leading men that they kind of played a type and then they would just repeat that type forever. Like you said, they're kind of playing themselves in a lot of ways. Um, and a Charlton Heston was this as well. And I don't, you know, movie stars like don't, I don't know that they exist like that anymore. Will Smith's a good example. I think some of what Tom Cruise does now as like action hero is him playing a type of himself um, that he's kind of cultivated through the years. And then he ran away from him for years trying to win an Oscar and then said, screw it and started making money again. And then <laughs> went back the other way. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just neat to see a guy like Gregory Peck. I mean, I know him from Moby Dick and, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and goodness gracious, you a dozen other movies. And it's always the same thing. That tall guy with that just unbelievably deep, lumbering voice that you just, you hear him talk and it's like, I mean, he was his generation's Morgan Freeman. Like if you could get Gregory Peck to do his voice on anything, you would have him do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's always the guy that's kind of like I always put him right there with like Charlton Heston and like Paul Newman as just mm-hmm. like these stoic type looking guys that were just in like a ton of movies. But it was like you always went and watched them and they were always kind of like, OK, well, that's Charlton Heston, no matter whether he's, um, you know, getting chased by, you know, cannibals at night or whether he's, you know, kissing an ape. And same with like Paul Newman. It was like Paul Newman, whether he's playing pool or he's in a prison uh, chain gang, it was always like, well, that's Paul Newman. And that's the way Gregory Peck has always come off to me, even like in a movie like To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a fantastic movie. It's always like, okay, well, it's so Gregory Peck doing it. So he's one of those actors, but it doesn't, I mean, it's almost like Leonardo DiCaprio in a way too, where it's like, yeah, the guy's got a lot of range and everything like that, but he always see him as his actor before the character. So, but you know, it's, it's not to his fault. No, but I would say this about Peck that would be different than maybe DiCaprio. I think Gregory Peck has had roles that after he's had them, everyone else is trying to chase what he's done. And I don't know that anybody's ever going to chase Leonardo DiCaprio. And that's no slight on him. I think he's a fantastic actor, Leo is. But I don't know that he's ever done something that's as indelible as like Atticus Finch. Like everybody that I ever saw try to play that in a play was trying to do Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. You can't read that book and not hear it in his voice. Nowadays, I mean, it's just he he left such a mark on that role. And then the same with like Ahab for Moby Dick. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm still yet to finish that book someday in my lifetime. I hope to complete that one and check that off the bucket list. But I read that and I read it in Gregory Peck as Ahab. I mean, I just can't separate the two. And I know Patrick Stewart's done it and a 100 other people, too. It's just some things get burned in your brain and that's how they go. But I guess we should do a plot summary, Nick, because, again, this movie is it's a good bit older than, a, you know, not necessarily a lot of the stuff we've done this year, but it's older than a lot of the horror stuff we do. So let me lay this out for everybody, tell you what The Omen is all about. So while in Rome on a diplomatic assignment, Robert Thorne learns his infant son has died and wanting to spare his wife, Kathy, the pain of losing the child He accepts the charity of a priest who says another baby was born in the hospital, but its mother passed. So Thorne takes the baby and he and his wife raise it as their own and she's no more the wiser. Several years later, another priest confronts Thorne, who is now the ambassador to Great Britain, and says his child, 
Damien is the son of Satan, the Antichrist, and that he must be destroyed before coming into full power and taking everything that Thorne has. Thorne initially rejects this notion in spite of his son's odd actions and other odd occurrences that happen, but over time, he realizes that this is indeed the truth. Along with a photographic journalist, they go to an ancient city to retrieve information on how to kill the Antichrist and Damien. Though Thorne can't bring himself to do it, and the, once the journalist is killed, it convinces him that he must go through with it. Meanwhile, his wife Kathy is recovering from her injuries after sustaining a fall caused by Damien, and the child's evil nanny, who is working hoots with the powers of darkness, throws her out of a hospital window, killing her once and for all. Thorne arrives, fights, and kills the nanny and drags Damien, literally kicking and screaming, into a church to perform the ritual. But before he can go through with it, he's shot by authorities. Damien goes on to live with Thorne's lifelong friend, the President of the United States. And that's the plot summary for The Omen. And, I mean, you talk about, dun-dun-dun, at the end. I mean, I think we all kind of saw that coming if you paid attention to some of the, the ancillary dialogue in the first act. But you can get lost in the rest of it along the way, and you might forget, oh, the Antichrist power plays to become the President of the United States. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, totally. I mean – very, very, very good ending. But one thing I want to I want to talk about though with this movie though too is, or what I really feel elevates it, is the score. And it just starts off right from the bat as far as oh, how yeah. strong and just powerful the score is. I mean, you can. It's almost one of these scores too where it's almost like something like Halloween or something like this where you can play the bars for this or segments of this, and people will know what movie it's from without ever having seen the movie. It's just one of those ones that has just been so much ingrained in popular culture. I mean, even something as like simple as like South Park, they have played this theme or theme so many times, whether it's an algorithm with Cartman or something like that, just to be able to elevate the evil of a child. And it's just, I mean, when you, when you said too, that it, it won an Oscar for that. And I didn't even know that until, you know, your, until the introduction of this. And it's like very well-deserved. I mean, this is one of these themes that just sits there like with the exorcist, Halloween, you know, Jaws as just one of these like simple, understated scores that just it brings so much feeling, tension and horror when you hear it. Yeah, realize what Richard Donner got in a bang bang between two movies. He got Jerry Goldsmith's Omen, and then he got John Williams' Superman score. I mean, holy cow, mm -hmm. man! Somebody hitting it out of the park. And then later on, look, people bang on it now because it sounds a little cheesy and dated. But that Lethal Weapon score with Michael Caine and Eric Clapton and David Sanborn—that's a fantastic noir '80s action score. You know, I mean, so this guy obviously knows how to work with scores. And there's two things about this that, that it puts together. And you painted the perfect with the, the score um, attributes, Nick. But it's also the way this is shot. This could be such a cheapo knockoff horror movie. All right. It could be a ripoff of The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, both of which were made by Arturs, you know, Roman Polanski and William Friedkin. And Donner could have gone or they could have gone cheap and gotten somebody else and it would have looked cheesy. What they did is they got a real director who knew how to shoot scenes and build atmosphere. And so much of this movie happens in the daytime, too. But it's when it's in the darks and in the corners, this movie knows how to linger. And that's what makes this thing so amazing to watch is that you sit on scenes and it's just a close up of Gregory Peck arguing with the nanny in the hallway about getting rid of the dog, which is like the dog of Satan or something, I, I guess Rottweiler action Cerberus going there or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but the hellhound, but like, instead of it being a bang, 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 cut, 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 it's one shot, two shot, slow shot, close up of the dog, 
atmospheric sound, a clock chimes. I mean, you get all this atmosphere. This movie is just full of atmosphere. And I think that's why you know, they got Gregory Peck after thinking for a lot of different actors that they thought they might want to go with with this one. They finally got him for it. And even he commented about the age difference. And they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll play Thorne as if he has been a career guy and that Kathy has kind of gone along for the ride with it. Because when we meet him, he's in Rome and he's working at the consulate. So he's not you know, high up on the food chain yet, but his college roommate and, you know, again, lifelong friend is the president. So eventually, you know, the small systems of American politics, you're going to wind up getting a better job if you stay close to this person. And when we meet Thorne, it's, you know, we meet him at, at the lowest point of his personal life. They've tried forever to have a kid and, you know, their son is, is stillborn. He dies. And Kathy doesn't know it yet because she has such a difficulty with the pregnancy and with the birth. And that's when that priest comes to him. And what's neat to watch this movie is having seen it before and you watch it now and how it all, all unfolds is that this is everything about the seventies that you could want. It's all your satanic panic and it's a political thriller at the same time because there's this whole, you know, machination of people working behind the scenes to bring about the Antichrist who are making sure that this happens. Because what we learn is that they murdered Thorne's baby so that they could give it the, you know, the Antichrist, give him the Antichrist to raise and be no more the wise. They found the weak mark to work on. And that's what's so neat to watch and see how it plays out throughout the, the film. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's very seventies. I mean, with so much of the stuff, I mean, especially like the hospital scene and just the way it's done. I mean, I get it. It's done like in a religious setting, which, you know, I think was more of a common thing back then with, you know, nuns and everything, you know, as far as being the, uh, you know, medical professionals there and everything like this. But it's, it's interesting though, to see that happen where it's like, Oh, the baby has died, you know, quote unquote, and we want to basically switch this out and just, I'm not going to say like disrespect for the mom, but I guess you could actually say that, you know what I mean? Where it's like, we're just going to fool her, you know what I mean? And just say, this is her child. And, you know, today, like, obviously, I mean, I hope that, you know, I hope to God that that would never happen, but it is something where I think it's a very different time back then that makes it believable that it would be like, okay, well, I could totally believe that based upon kind of, you know, how this woman is presented as far as just being like, you know, he's the professional and she's going to be the, you know, person that's going to follow him and everything that, you know, he would do this as, you know, kind of almost like a father figure. Cause that's almost the way their marriage came off is almost not so much romantic, but more, more so that he was her protector in many ways. Cause, but again, I think that totally fits with who his character is and kind of how you described it, where he's a total career person. And I think it's just something where, he kind of had to do this. You know what I mean? If he didn't have to get married to, you know, push his political career, he wouldn't have got married. I think he's just more in love with us, with his job than anything else. And you can kind of see that throughout the movie is that, you know, even when it comes to his son and everything, he's almost kind of distant in a lot of ways. But again, if it fits the character and especially the time that this uh, was coming out. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, and, and when we talk about Gregory Peck here, I mean, we've talked about how he just eats the screen up and he does. The thing I will say is that for their age difference, he and Lee Remick have what I call very real chemistry. Like, I, yeah, they're, he's a lot older than her or whatever, but I could see them as a couple. They act like couples I knew growing up. And now I grew up in the late 70s, the early, I really grew up in the 80s. But I knew a lot of couples where, the, you 
you know, the man may have been a, a good year, number of years older than the, the wife, but they still had a real genuine care for each other and they had a real relationship with each other. And that's what I, I will compliment this movie. And I'll say about the 2006 remake. It's almost a shot for shot remake. I mean, it's shot very well. You've got an all-star cast, but the difference is Liev Shriver and Julia Stiles have absolutely no chemistry together. And I, I, they're both wonderful performers, but they just have nothing together. Gregory Peck and Lee Remick look like they could be a real couple and, and you could get it like, yeah, it's different. And yes, it probably was a marriage. I, I kind of took it as Kathy was probably one of his staffers somewhere along the way. And he just couldn't stop looking at her. Maybe I, I don't know. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the political story of all time. Right. But, what I think is neat is how Kathy is sort of eschewed to the side for a lot of this movie. And really what you see is it, it plays on this, this idea and this notion of a mother's intuition where she knows something is not right about this kid. You know, even from the get go, just the little times when they're walking in the park and he kind of jumps out from the tree and scares her and all this stuff. Like there's something about her and Damien's relationship that is so distant for a mother and a child like she's more annoyed by him and wants to put him off he's a thing to show off at the wedding or whatever but she doesn't seem to have any real connection to him and i can only chalk that up to it's not her kid man yeah and i think that's what they're going for i think they're kind of going for that like natural intuition that you know mother's intuition and that it's just not there and rightfully so. I mean, it's not her child. It's not even human, really, when you want to look at it. And yeah, I mean, that's totally played up in here. And that's even, you know, going back to their marriage, too, it's kind of, you know, almost kind of reminds me of like the Wonder Years when you watch uh, the, the marriage there and just kind of yeah. like how the very different they are. But yet, you know what I mean? It just made sense for that time. But yeah, I mean, and then we get to like, you know, the scenes is like, you know, as he gets a little bit older and everything like this. And again, it's just very much a product of his time when they're walking by the river and then they're looking for Damien and it's like, Oh my God, did he fall into the river? It's like, watch your damn kid. You know what I mean? It's like you're mm -hmm. by a very dangerous river and you got this little two year old just kind of walking around by himself behind you. But again, it's like, again, it just very much comes off as a product of its time. And it's one of those things too. Yeah. Where you just see her and when they find the kid and then later, you know, as we get into it, when they're going to the church with the child and just, this inability that the mother has to control the child. I mean, as you mentioned, and everybody knows who listens to this, that I'm a dad. And I think it's very, very true that usually sons are a lot more connected to the mother and that daughters are more connected to the father in many cases. And just seeing how they don't have that connection at all. And like even going to the church and the way that the kid is screaming and freaking out as soon as he sees those crosses, it's very like, like, okay, yeah, this is a mother that doesn't have control of that child and there's something missing there. Yeah, there's a connection missing. And I mean, again, I think the thorns are picked for three reasons, all right? So one is he's very wealthy. He comes from a family of wealth. So it's they drop a line about you know, the next heir to the thorn you know, billions or whatever. So he's really wealthy. He's also incredibly powerful, but he's also somebody who's so disconnected from like – having to care about emotions and everything. Again, he has a wife that he obviously cares about. And, you know, I mean, they get it on the first time they moved to London together, um, but they don't have any real desires to be this big burgeoning family. 
you know, like they're there for his career. It's the next step up. He's friends with the president. Chances are he'll wind up in the Senate one day and then he'll be president or something along those lines. Like that's what they're angling for. So they're kind of aloof and disconnected from all of it. And I mean, that connection to the president then works out pretty good because I mean, I love how they play it out here. This, this sort of loose prophecy, which this is not exactly the book of Revelations. I've read Revelation a few times and it's, this is, it's not that specific weird. They twisted a lot of verses around. As people are wont to do anytime. I mean, you know, Quentin Tarantino's done it for decades uh, with his Bible quoting and things like that. But I love how it's uh, when the star rises in Bethlehem and you have the blue moon here and this, all these things come together. The Antichrist will be born. And then, and people have tried to figure that out, what that was for years. I've even heard interpretations that, you know, the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. I don't know if I would go there, but I mean, that's, that's what, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. And what I love is that they try to put all this, religious i'm going to call it mumbo jumbo in with this occultist stuff and then the the you know fable of if you're too career-minded as parents and you're disconnected your children will become the devil you know literally right yeah totally i mean yeah i mean what it does it's almost like indiana jones by adding some of that like christian iconography into this it gives it some substance you know what i mean yeah you know, a lot of people who are watching this aren't going to be Bible scholars in the same way. Like when you're watching, you know, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark or, um, you know, what's the other one? The, the Last Crusade. I mean, they, they play pretty far and loose with a lot of their Christian, you know, you know, speeches and, you know, stuff from the Bible and everything. You can go look it up and it's like, yeah, it's not exactly what they're saying in there, but it's, it's, it's played correctly there too. And, you know, even like as they get into this movie too, they're trying to figure out what it means. And they're like, well, it's not a literal trend you know, it's not literal. It could mean this because they're talking about what the Jews take Zion back and then the comet in the sky. And it's like, yeah, like you were saying, it's like, well, this could mean this and that could mean this. But regardless of that, I do think though, like the one scene in here too, and I really enjoy the fact that this was, that they're in England and it makes sense too. When you really think about what they're trying to do with the child is like, they're trying to get this child that power. They're kind of sneaking them through the back door. You don't do it to the president. You do it to someone who's connected to him, kind of a couple of degrees of separation. And hopefully, you know, with some good planning that that child could, you know, get to the right place where he needs to be. But the setup here, or, you know, probably the most famous scene within this movie is the Damien. It's all for you. And yeah, the, it's just so yeah. wonderful. Just the way it's set up because you don't even, the first time you watch this, you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, you got, you got this, you got this maid, this nanny here and kind of talking with the, you know, talking with the father and then they're having, it's at a birthday party and the way she just disappears. And then also you hear in the background going, Damien, Damien. And then also everybody looks up and then she just says the, you know, the, the classic line, you know, it's, it's all for you. And then she hangs herself and crashes through the window and everything like this. And it's just, the reaction shots of everybody is just so great because no one knows what to do. And it's like, you think about it, it's like, that's exactly what would happen where it's like, uh, what? And like, you know, even like you watch the little Ferris wheel and they still keep it going with the kids on even after it happened, because like, what do you do? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, you just, all these kids just saw this woman hang herself. And you know, it's very, very, like I said, it's haunting and in so many different ways. And it's just, it's just a great scene, especially with that score just pumping in the background. What's great about that is you see her look at that dog again in the distance and she makes this connection with it and the close up of the eyes. And then she does the hang and you hear all these screams and screeches and then everything just goes silent. The score drops 
the sound drops. It's all just like it's it's simulating what it's like to be in shock when you see mm-hmm. something happen. And I, you know, I'm not going to tell the whole story here, but I've been a couple times in my life where I've been in shock, and that's what it feels like. It's like there's no sound. I can't feel anything. I'm just glued to what is happening in front of me right now. And I don't, I can't move. I'm paralyzed in shock and fear. And it, it's a, such an iconic scene. It's, I mean, again, if you don't know anything from the omen, you know, the score and, you know, it's all for you, Damien and jumping off the roof with the rope. And what's, what's wild about that, Nick, is that that happens 25 minutes into this movie and you got a long way to go. Like, I'm like, what are they going to do to top this? And they just keep rationing up the tension. And it's, it's also when we introduce what may be my favorite character in this whole thing, Keith Jennings. David Warder is so fun here as like this Roger Waters turned, uh, photographer, journalist guy. It's played by David Thewlis in the, in the uh, remake. And it's just a perfect casting, but that's exactly who you want to do this. If you can't get a fine brother, get him. And <laughs> I love David Warder and everything he does. Again, he has a real commanding voice and a presence himself. He's a big kind of tall guy too, but he's got this, he, he and Thorne are like, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years apart, but it's almost like he used to play Thorne's younger brother or something in this. And he, I love how they use the photography will be foreshadowing of how someone dies. So the crazy priest, there's all these photographs of these you know, spikes running through him and we'll find out that's how he's going to die. And then, you know, uh, Jennings takes a picture of himself and he sees his head getting decapitated by glass and that's how he's going to die. I love how they did that. And I realized that like the final destination series would not even exist if this movie wasn't around. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's great how they play with that photography evidence and stuff like that and just give you like these little, you know, foreshadowing, a little, you know, like, as you say, like Chekhov's gun as far as like this is what's going to happen. And, of course, the first time you're watching it, you don't realize it. You don't realize it at all until a repeat viewing. It's like, oh, that's what they're telling us here. I mean, like I said, it's just it's great filmmaking and it's great scripting when you see what they've done. And so many movies have copied this, you know, like I said, final destination, everything like this. I mean, final destination made a whole plot about this element, but it's something that has been totally been copied over and over again. And I can't remember a movie that's ever done this before, but it's just, again, it's just, it gives you that eeriness. I mean, I got, I think they even copied it in ghostbusters too. I mean, it's just (laughs) that whole thing where it's just that the, I mean, it's a naturally creepy setting when you think about how film and, uh, pictures used to be developed that they go into the dark room and just that red light. I mean, it's just naturally eerie. And again, you just like, you mix in that score, the red lights and then the pictures, and then just almost like the, what are we looking at? What are we looking at here? And then like, again, for you not to realize it again until second viewing, it's just, it's great. And gives this movie so much rewatchability. Well, horror movies work because of their ability to create a sense of confinement, whether that is physical space or mental space of confinement. And the ways to do that is to capture life in a still form. And then you have to develop it in this small room. And again, you've got the mood light with the red and everything. And just to watch it slowly come together. And you realize there's this one person that knows this. And he's trying to get the other main person that needs to understand this to look at this and understand it. And you realize how absurd it sounds. But in light of everything you're seeing, you see Thorne start to come around. And that's what makes him and Gregory Peck and Warner have such good uh, relatability with one another is Thorne doesn't just outright dismiss him from it because he's seen some weird stuff at this point too. He doesn't understand some things, but he's also very logical and very concrete. And that doesn't fit into his little box. 
And what he's realizing is that, man, you were never in control of the box at all. And we got to talk about Father Brennan, um, who is, I mean, talk about the archetype for the crazy priest coming at you, man. I mean, from, from again, Rosemary's Baby and uh, from The Exorcist and then you know, even stuff like Amityville and, and now this. Um, the, the role of the priest is uh, a lot of times being the harbinger of bad news. And what we learned from Brennan, and this is what is so great about his reveals, is that I know your son is not your son. Your son is dead. And that thing that you have is the Antichrist because its mother was a jackal. And I'm like, what a line, right? And when they, when Thorne and, and, and Jennings are digging up the graves later in, in uh, Rome or wherever they are in Italy, um, and then they, they find that jackal's body in the mother's tomb or whatever, it's like, oh, it's such a reveal. But it's so – I mean it seems cheesy and kind of Scooby new now. But, man, in 1976, that would have blown people's wigs. And I, I do like it, though, like when he's trying to describe it, though, it's like, you know, right when he says, like, you know, Jackal, it's like he just gets out the j- and then like the door open, you know, the guy kicks him out or whatever. And it's like, w- what's he talking about? Again, just uh, on review on rewatches, it's just like it, it makes it so much so great. But that's the whole thing is like th- there's a lot of really good characters within this movie that, you know, become archetypes, you know, later stuff. I mean, obviously, like the priest, like you brought up in other movies. I mean, even something like the Blob remake as far as the priest there, you know, I'm going to go walk around and I'm going to be, you know, God, I even think they've done it on like shows like True Detective where you got the priest that's going to grab the cross and walk around and just talk about fire and brimstone and you're all going to hell. I mean, even the Poltergeist 2 brought that in to it with uh, Henry Kane. Um, I think that's his name um, as far as the uh, the bad guy and stuff. But one character I want to talk about, though, too, who is such a key piece to this is after that nanny dies, they're at home and then all of a sudden this new nanny comes in. You know, a little bit older, not as attractive or anything like this. And she's just got this way about her where she's just domineering. And, you know, it's like she's in control even when she likes to make you think that you're in control. And even her setup there, I mean, I think they copied it on season one of The Simpsons with their babysitter where it's like, oh, I was sent by the agency and stuff. And, like, you can just see they're they're kind of second-guessing it as it goes on. But then she hands them the papers and it's kind of like – Okay, well, it's it's good. It's good. I mean, they're just, you know, like I said, I think they're just the mom doesn't have the connection to the kid to be that overprotective of it. And I think just like with Gregory Peck's character, he's just like, all right, well, this is just normal. You know what I mean? He probably grew up with a nanny and, you know, he has all these assistants in his life all the time that it's just that's just commonplace. Yeah, I mean, they're in a life of privilege, so this is just part of their life. I think it's amazing what you say about Billy Whitelaw, who's playing Mrs. Blaylock there, that she's not as attractive as Lee Rimmick. If you see her outside of this movie, she's just as attractive. That's the amazing thing, is when they can take this gorgeous woman and make her look like Mary Poppins from hell. Because that's exactly oh, yeah. what she is. But, uh, you know, you just you pull the hair up, take the makeup off, kind of button her up a little bit. And yeah. And I love how she does this. Like, let me sit with the child first and relate to him in my own way. So he gets to know me. And like part of it is logically you're going, OK, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Kids going to spend a lot of time with this person. They've got to be able to connect without us in the room. So, yeah. But what you also realize is like, no, that's the servant of Satan letting the Antichrist know I'm here for you. You don't really understand this yet, but that's OK. You know, just do what you want and we'll be OK. Be a kid. I'll take care of all this other stuff. And it's just so neat to watch that unravel. And what's what's so great are her confrontations with Thorne are so epic. Like the one she has with the mother about get the kid ready for church. I want him there. Yada, yada. Well, I don't think he should go. Well, I, you know, the, he's going to go. He's too disruptive for it right now. I don't care. I want him there, you know. And you can tell like she's just looking at like I can't wait till I get to kill you. 
Like, you know, she, you know, she's just going to take her out. But when she looks at Thorn, she knows like, well, we're going to come to blows too, but that's going to be a tougher go. Cause you're kind of a big guy one and two, I don't know. You seem to be strong willed. That's going to be harder to break. Whereas Kathy was maybe a little easier psychologically to break. Yeah, he's very, I mean, I guess you could almost say the word stubborn with a lot of his ways, because it's just like, nope, this is the way it's going to be. I mean, even when the Rottweiler comes back, I guess, you know, I was watching my son. He's like, you know, that's Cerberus, right? I'm like, okay. I'm like, I don't know where you're getting all these terms from, but I'll, I'll go with it. But um, he, you know, just, you know, with the dog and it's like, the child's very fond of it. And he's just like, no, it goes, I will pick out the dog for the child if we're going to get a dog. And it's like, you have to take, you have to get this dog away. And it's just like she's so belligerent to him, but she's doing it so low key where it's not like she's out and right was telling him, I'm not going to do this. It's just kind of like, oh, I'm going to kind of quick contradict you and then I'll kind of fall in line. But you can just tell it's like she's not going to do it. And it's it's such a creepy character because, you know, she's up to more than what she is on screen. You know what I mean? It's almost one of these things where you kind of wish you could kind of see what was going on when she wasn't on screen as far as what she was doing, because, you know, that she was, you know as far as this movie's universe goes, was one of these people that were probably, you know, sacrificing animals and everything at this group of satanic people. And that's even the other creepy part about it is who sent her? You know what I mean? Was it yeah. the devil himself? Is there a congregation of Satan, you know, Satanists or something like this that are connected back to that church? There's all this mythology that you can really think of that was going on in this movie. That's just kind of hinted at, which gives it that all like more creepiness. Cause because it's like, because they don't overexplain it, it kind of just lets your mind fill in the blanks. And they do give a good bit of lines. It's just dropped into like five or six different scenes and you piece it all together and you realize that it's it's all about the timing and all these, you know, astrological signs and stuff like that. But it's also this realization. And I think Jennings is the one that re- reveals this out, that scholars have agreed that, you know, the Antichrist would rise up to the world of politics because it's all about having people at each other's throats from different shores at the same time. And you don't do that with armies necessarily. You do it through policy. And, you know, we were in the Cold War at this point. And that, I mean, it we were waiting for nuclear Armageddon at any minute in 1976. Everybody was worried about it. We thought it was coming any other day. And so the idea that the Antichrist would rise up through these corrupted power vessels makes sense. So what you realize is that this movie is not only supernatural again, but there's also a real real world element to it. This, this cabal of people. So I'm with you. Like she's probably got a group of backers somewhere that are also Satanists that have watched these signs. are like, okay, now you've been in place in this new job for 30 years. Now it's time to send you forth to do your ultimate bidding. And I'm like, man, you talk about playing the long game. These people definitely were playing it to set all this in motion and this one thing too if you start pulling at the strings of this you, you gang on the thread a little bit it will unravel a little because at some point you're like man this like this wouldn't work in the age of google and cell phones and all that kind of stuff but and maybe it would and i don't know but in 1976 puts you in time and place with it it totally works because again rosemary's baby was a cabal of people that were you know making sure that she had you know the, the son of satan as it was or the spawn of satan and the way that that unravels is not totally different than the way this one does, too. But I think Blaylock's mm-hmm. best scenes, again, are, are when she's facing off with Gregory Peck. And then her, her fight scene and death scene with him are pretty epic. I mean, they beat the hell out of each other before he stabs her with two ice picks. It's pretty, pretty great. Yeah. And the whole thing, too, is what I think is kind of great about the story is it's such the opposite side of the coin from the birth of Jesus. You know what yes. I mean? When you kind of talk about, like, the three wise men. 
and him growing up and everything like this. It's kind of like he was someone who wasn't, you know, he was born and he wasn't put into like a, a, a rich family. He was the son of a carpenter and poor and, you know, lived a very, you know, below modest life where this is a, someone who had the, had the people coming to him right away, just like Jesus, but he was put into power. He was put into rich, um, just, you know, the privilege and everything like this. So it is, it is a very interesting story when you look at it. And I think this makes the script even better is because it's like, they are pulling a lot of those archetypes from the Bible, as far as, you know, the whole story with Jesus and then reversing it and being like, well, of course, I mean, if that's how it would happen, that's probably how it would happen is it would, he's the exact opposite in every regard. But I guess kind of like, here's my question to you. And I think this is the whole kind of like question that I've had throughout this movie. What does Damien know? You know, he's obviously a child. He's obviously got the mind of a child, or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But does he know that he's the Antichrist? Or is it something that he's kind of figuring out throughout the way? You know, it's something I think it's kind of left up to the viewer. But what's your thoughts on that? I think he comes to realize that he's got power after Blaylock comes into his life because he connects with that dog after the dog hypnotically tells the nanny to hang herself or whatever. And this is one thing you got to notice is Damien's never upset by any of this stuff. You know, and you can tell like he's got this, I don't know, extrasensory perception and, and communication ability. And I think the more he gets with Blaylock, the more she's able to kind of unravel it for him. Because before he knocks his mother off the stool while she's watering the plant next to the stairs, by the way, bad idea. If there if there aren't kids in the room, bad way of watering the plants, but whatever. She has him spinning on that tricycle like in a in a fury, right? Because she's working him up and then he just goes straight out into the hallway and boom, straight for his mother. And I think what's neat about this and the way that the kid actor plays it is I I think it's in the era when they didn't tell this kid what kind of movie he was in and he had no idea. Like, And so he (laughs) plays it so innocent and just kind of the kid's face. He's had to have been cast because he had this look of like he doesn't look downright evil, but there's something sinister behind that, especially that last shot when he turns around with the president and he's got that grin on his face it's like ah oh, this little son of bitch knows you know he knows now i think it's i think he, he figures it out as it goes on that's the genius in this too and then the kid they cast in 2006 nothing against that kid i'm sure he did good but they told that kid he was in a horror movie and he just looked like he was just ready to murder at all times you know this kid much more uh harvey stevens much more in the danny lloyd you know, kind of kind of acting from The Shining where he didn't really know what he was in and he's just playing off of it. And it makes him so good. But I, I think Damien comes to know what he is throughout the unraveling of the movie that I don't think he knows from the beginning, no. Yeah, and that's the one thing too is like even when he does stuff, it's kind of like when he knocks his mom off the chair um, and she, you know, is hanging there and everything like this. It's like it can be seen as an accident. You know what I mean? Did he deliberately do it? Did she, you know, somehow control him to do it? You know what I mean? Or was it just, you know, him just being a stupid, you know, a stupid kid, you know what I mean? And then even when she's like holding onto the ledges, they wisely too, didn't have it be like where he kind of like pulled her fingers off. You know what I mean? Yeah. He didn't he was touch just her. Kinda, he, no, yeah. he was just looking at her. And I think again, it's just like great because it's not making this kid to be, you're not turning against the kid so to speak, like you don't like the nanny, you don't like the dog, you know what I mean? Like this, but the kid is still like, I get it. He's the devil, but it's like, he's just kind of like just a kid still. And that's one of the things I think is so great with this movie too, is 
a lot of times like children and actors, I mean, yeah, you'll have stuff like Game of Thrones or something like this where the children actors are great, but then there's other movies where I watch it and I'm like, uh, that kid actor, you know, Phantom Menace or something like this is like, is not a good actor. He's bringing down everything he's in. And they wisely just have this kid, especially because of the age, just not say anything until the end. Really? He doesn't really have any lines. He's just there. He's just kind of like this, you know, I guess you can say like almost like this MacGuffin that's just within that within with all these scenes and stuff. So it's just it's it's well 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 done that they didn't go and make this kid like overtly evil because when we get to the climax of the movie, it makes it you kind of you feel a lot more with Gregory Peck's character when it's like they kill a child. You know what I mean? It's like oh, you know what I mean? If they were showing this kid doing this stuff purposely, you'd be more willing to have the guy stab him, you know, seven times. Oh no, totally. He, he would totally be down for it. But what you realize is that he's innocent. He doesn't know it. It kind of leads into the idea of like, was Damien like a real kid and was taken over? But what you have to remember and what you realize is like, no, he's always been the spawn of Satan. He's just looks like a kid, which again is the converse to Jesus Christ. Jesus looked like a, a boy and looked like a man, but he was God in the flesh. And it's, you know, kind of wrapping your mind around that can be you know, trippy in a lot of ways and it is is a tough concept but it's the same for damien here as well as he's both at the same time he's got physical attributes but he's supernatural in almost every way and you can't shoot lightning bolt out of his hands or anything like that but he can definitely mind control people and he starts to do that as the movie goes forward and i think he plays a game on his dad too when his dad's dragging him in that church it's like no daddy no don't and it's like the only things he says right and you mm-hmm. see gregory peck like that moment of hesitation is what gets him shot by the the authorities, which we're going to talk about that in a minute, by the way, but we got to talk about how father Brennan dies because we've talked about the mom. She gets thrown off a balcony. Then she's in the hospital in this full like body cast thing, which I've been in one of those on the lower extremities, not a fun day. And then she gets thrown out the window and lands through a hospital, you know, ambulance. So what a, what a horrible way to die. Two falls for this poor woman, but father Brennan, we know he's going to get impaled somehow and he's trying to run from all of these dogs that have surrounded him and all this crazy stuff is going on. Right. And he's banging on the church door and lightning comes out of nowhere and strikes the steeple and this huge weather vane. Just, I mean, it plants him in the ground. And what I love about it is it's not bloody. It's not gory. It's literally boom right through him and it stakes him and he's just limp there. And I'm like, what a, what an amazing effect and a great shot. Oh, totally. What an awful way to just think about it where it's like you're, you're propelled up like that. It's holding you up like almost like you're on like a almost almost like, you know, even again, like we're talking like just reverses so much Christian iconography where it's like, you know, Jesus Christ or something like that, you know, on the cross and stuff like this. And it's like this guy gets, you know, gets, you know, basically staked through there and he's held up. You know what I mean? It's like he doesn't just like fall over or doesn't like cut him in half. It's just like real quick up there and then he's just in his position and it's like you think about it it's like it's it's a really well thought out it's i mean it's like it's it's a really well done you know death scene and everything like that and very creepy when you look at everything that went on around it Oh yeah, and I mean it's all foretold through the the photographs and all that. We've talked about that, but it's it's a great scene. And then again, the other day we got to talk about what happens to Jennings. I mean, we know he's he's gonna get his head cut off by a pane of glass, and it happens because they go and get the thunder knives that they need to kill the Antichrist with from the Exorcist or whatever in, in Megiddo, and 
uh, Thorne says, I can't do it. And he throws him away. And I love how Jennings is like, well, if you want, I will. And he goes to try to gather him up in like the most final destination way ever. A guy gets out of his truck. He doesn't set the handbrake right. It rolls back and this pane of glass comes. And I know it's just a mannequin, but it's a great shot of decapitating this guy. When the head goes forward, the body goes backward with the glass. And I'm like, you know, there's an actual physics problem to that, that they thought through and put on the film and it's so it burned into my memory how that looks and how cool that is even though it is just a cheap puppet oh yeah totally i know in the remake too they try to like do these deaths and then kind of like double it up and triple it up and it's like it's the simplicity of them as far as it not being overly gory that makes them a lot more effective and that's one thing too is like i i one, one, one of the really like things I liked about this movie that I kind of forgot about over the years was their trip over to Rome and everything where, you know, after the wife had the accident and he had talked, you know, he is kind of piecing all this stuff together with what the priest told him. He goes and uh, Gregory Peck decides to go do his like his own little mini investigation along with the reporter and just the whole, like finding the old priest that was in the, you know, that was there when the child was born and everything like this. And he got burned and it was almost like, you know, his come up and for his like, you know, part in this and like the writing of the six, six, six on the floor. And, you know, this is the first time, I mean, six, six, six is something that's just as, you know, popular as anything else nowadays when it comes to, you know, what evil is and stuff. And that, this is the first time I've ever heard when I was, when I was a child watching this, that, you know, six, six, six was the mark of the demon. I mean, is that something that's really in the Bible or is that something that was brought in for this movie or is, you know, I just, I guess I got questions on that. It, it's in the book of revelation. You have to look at it and see how it's translated and what that actually means. And I get, I don't want to get into a Sunday school lesson here or whatever, but it is actually in there that there's a mark of the beast and it translates into six, six, six. Now what that means is up to a lot of interpretation. And the thing you got to remember about revelation is that it, the way the story happens is that the apostle John is exiled on an Island and he receives this revelation from God and from Jesus Christ about what the end times will be. And a lot of it is this is what's coming in the the physical world, and here's what's coming at the end. And they framed it around things that he as a human could understand. So the three-headed dragons and the beast of this and the lake of this and all that, it's a lot of that figurative language is written so that he would have a way to capsulize like what was happening. But the story is that in the battle of good and evil, Jesus Christ rising from the dead is what defeats evil ultimately anyway. So it all of the, the pestilence and things that can happen don't matter because in the end Jesus will reign supreme and will defeat Satan. And that's the story of revelation, but you can get real lost and twisted and all again, all the figurative language of it. So, but, but to answer your question, yes, that is in the Bible. What does it actually mean? I don't know. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I've ever seen a birthmark that was as good of a tattoo as, as the ones that we've seen here uh, in this. That's the one part of this that, and I mean, I've seen some kids that are heavy sleepers. I don't know anybody that can have their hair the way Damien gets done here and you clearly see the mark in the back of his head. Yeah, it doesn't work. I remember one time my, uh, my mom was getting real mad at my father cause he had this awful eighties mustache all the way into like the two thousands. 
And she woke me up one night because she had enough of it and she was going to try to shave it off. It doesn't work. Nope. They wake up super quick anytime you try that. And trying to put a scissors by someone who's sleeping, not the best idea because they could quick move and, you know, they might be wearing an eye patch later if uh, things go yeah. that way. But but the one thing, too, is I think this was the most effective scene for this movie on my rewatches was the stuff in Italy, though, and especially when he uncovers his child. And I think that's the most harrowing part about this was – you're kind of going with it being like, well, this guy's got a lot of bad luck and everything. And his child died and it's kind of like this. And then you realize, no, his child didn't die in childbirth. They killed his child. And, yeah, you know, it was a murder. They, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the way that the skeleton looks and everything like this is that they ended up bashing the kid's head in or something like this. And it's like, oh, it makes it just that much more creepy when you think about, you know, this this guy and everything, you know, as far as his wife getting thrown down and then later killed and his child being killed and just everything. I mean, it's just, and then the, the, what is put on him when he ends up meeting with this um, guy out there, when he talks about the, the seven daggers and basically from my understanding, from what he said is that you got the seven daggers and you have the main one, which is going to penetrate the child and kill the child's physical form. And then you have to take the other remaining daggers and then place them in the uh, shape of a cross in the kid. And when you really yeah. think about that, it's like, Ooh, that's, that's pretty horrific when you think about what that would all take to put basically seven daggers through somebody in the shape of a cross. I mean, pretty, uh, pretty gross stuff when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, you have to lay the crucifixion on the evil thing is what it is. I mean, you have to do it on holy ground and all that. I mean, it's uh, yeah. It, you start thinking about it in terms of reality. Like if he had gone through with it, what he would have had to do, it's just, ah, oh, it's amazing to think about. It. And it's kind of mind blowing too. And what you realize about Thorne is, and it's, it's a line I'm going to borrow that I heard Matt Damon's character say in Rounders is if you're at the table and you can't spot the sucker inside of 30 minutes, guess what? You're the sucker. And that's what Thorne comes to realize is that as smart as I am, as powerful as I am, as rich as I am, I'm the mark. I've been the mark for years. And how deep does this go? You know, I mean, how how many things have conspired to make this happen to this point? I mean, it can really blow your mind again. And ultimately, he's just to the I've got to do this. My wife is dead and, you know, my life is over. I've got to end this child. And my thing is, is that, man, like ambassadors usually get like, the you know, I'm lethal weapon too. diplomatic immunity. I don't care if he's got a knife over the kid or not with the, <laughs> the secret service guy from great Britain or whatever that guns him down out of nowhere. I'm like, that dude's going to be in a lot of meetings. He's going to have to answer about why did you shoot the American ambassador? Like, and why did you kill him? You couldn't shoot him in the arm, make him drop the knife. Like it was shoot to kill. Oh, totally. And that's the whole thing too, is like, you know, he has the big battle scene with, with, with the nanny and ends up killing her, locking the dog away and everything. And it's kind of like, oh, my God, if he didn't, like, you know, just speed out of there, he probably could have got to the church without the cops following him. But he breaks out, you know, out of his mansion and everything. And then the cops follow him there. And it's just one of those things where even if he would have killed the child, it's like his life is forfeit at that point. No matter what happens at that, it's like his life is over, whether he, you know, he's probably going to end up dead anyways, because if they find, you know, the cops come in and find that child with seven daggers in him, I don't know. It's like, they're probably going to end up shooting him dead anyway. So it's just like, again, it just, it makes you feel bad for him. Cause it's like, what did he do to deserve this? But again, it's almost like, 
again, bringing in like, you know, Bible and, you know, a lot of the um, tales within there and everything is kind of like, I, you, again, you'll be able to fill this in a little bit more, but there was, was it Abraham that had, to, that was told to kill his child or whatever, or. Yeah. Yeah. God, Abraham God, was asked, asked to sacrifice Isaac as a test of faith. Uh, yeah, and he didn't have almost, to ultimately, but, it, but he went through the point. I mean, the, the point of the story is that his faith in God was enough that if I have to do it, I have to do it. I have faith that God will give me the son back because he prayed for him for all these years and things like that. And of course, God stops him. The angel does and they provide a ram and you know, the story goes on as it is. But and maybe that's what he was hoping for, too. I think the other thing that and it's just occurred to me, Nick, as you were talking there, the, the thing the priest keeps talking about is that he won't stop until he's taken everything that's yours, and when he's got it, he'll take you too. And it's the point of, like, how much is Damien manipulating his father at this point, too, to, like, act irrationally, and to not be the cool and calm guy that he's been, but to speed out of there and draw attention to himself so because he knows, hey, that that's what's going to tip him over the edge. I don't know. It's, it, you can you can mind bend yourself into a pretzel with this if you think about it enough, for sure. But yeah. it, I think again the way the way the movie ends with him standing by the president during the twenty one gun salute for his two dead parents in Arlington Cemetery and turning around and smiling at the dog like hi hellhound, we'll play later. It's oh, it's so creepy, man. Yeah, and this whole thing too is like even when you watch this movie and like you hear like you know like and you're, you know like you're you're bringing up you know the book of revelations this has already been laid out and the whole thing too is like for them to sit there and talk about like oh the book of revelations and how everything here is fitting into that it's like well you got to take it another step further you're going to fail it's already been predetermined or whatever that no matter what you do here you're not going to win that this child is going to win because he's going to ga- gain power. And that's the whole thing is like, it's almost like the self-fulfilling prophecy at the end, which is even makes it even more creepy. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it, even though you, you want them to try to prevail, but you realize they can't do anything about it. This was foretold. If you want to follow that, that three line for sure. Yeah. I mean, cause it is because we think about it. It's like, if he wouldn't have tried to kill the child there, he wouldn't have been shot. And by him getting shot, puts the child in a more uh, privileged situation by being the son now of the president. And it's just like, again, yeah. it's, it's all self-fulfilling. Yeah, it would be like if George Bush Jr., George W. Bush, figured out a way to be the Antichrist and have his parents whacked so that he could be, you know, next to Lyndon Johnson or something like that. I mean, you know, that's kind of what the timeline would look like, right? Just so he could grow up to be the president. So not only are you one of the richest people in America now and heir to all of that, but you're in the prime position of power to secede forward or something. It's, 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 it's trippy to think about like that, but I, I wanted to ask you real quick before we get to the end here and stuff. And we talk about the curses and all the strange happenings. You've seen the sequels to this as well. I, I haven't, I know that Sam Neill's in one of them, but I know nothing about the Omen sequels. What are they all about? Um, it's basically kind of just his, you know, f- coming through this. I mean, the next movie, the Omen two, which is him is just a little bit of an older child and just more about how he it's I'm not going to say it's like a remake of this, but it's a lot more of the same stuff. Like in the beginning, you have you bring up back the daggers and then um, essentially someone's trying to take up the the mission of uh, Thorn and stuff. And then they end up getting killed and the daggers are lost. And then later, just people that uh, Damien's growing up around with end up kind of figuring out what his that he's the Antichrist. And the same thing happens in the end where they try to kill him, but then they fail and the child, you know, succeeds or just 
doesn't get killed. But then the Omen three is basically he uh, he's Sam Neill in that movie and looks a lot like this kid when you really think about what Sam Neill looks like. And he's president, and it's all about his you know his happenings and everything when he's president. And in the end, it's he ends up losing. It's kind of like the end of the Book of Revelations where. You know, Jesus does prevail. I mean, it's not so much like a world war going on in the end of times. It's more or less that he ends up getting defeated because someone, they dagger some reason go from seven to one. They drop that element, with it, which I thought was kind of stupid. But for the way the end of the movie is, is where he ends up getting stabbed by this woman and then he's at a church and he's bleeding out. And then there's a really cheesy like picture of Jesus, something you see like on one of those like Mexican candles that light up. And he ends up just like the de- the devil's just like, ah, you know, you've won or uh, Damien's like, you've won nothing and falls over and um, got some Bible music that goes on and end. they're not very good. I mean, they're not terrible movies and it's been a long time since I've seen them. So I do apologize about my, you know, kind of crappy <laughs> uh, plot summary of what they are, but they're, they're very forgettable. And like I said, Omen two very much follows the same type of pattern as this first one. And Sam Neill is pretty good from what I remember in part three, but again, they're not very memorable movies. And I guess there was actually a fourth movie that had come out that was a made for TV version where it was about, I guess, I don't know what the female name for Damien would be, but it's about Damien's daughter, who's now the new Antichrist. And that's all I know about it. So yeah, that's, that sounds like Carrie too, or something like that. Like just really bad. <laughs> yeah. Really just kind of like uh, yeah. pulling at strings here to make something happen. So, and then of course there's the remake and everything like that, which you said is very much like almost like the psycho remake where it's very shot for shot. It's one of those movies where the omen itself right here has not a- it has aged very good where it's like, uh, go, go drink the fine wine as opposed to that $2 uh, or two buck Chuck from Trader Joe's. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not terrible. Again, I think they've got a great cast. It's just they didn't gel together quite as well. And it, it but from I me mean, for a movie that was a thirty year homage to the original, it's it's actually not bad. As horror remakes go, it's pretty pretty good. Um, I, so I'd give it a, a watch if you like this movie. But I, again, nothing touches the original, and and I'm glad I've never seen the sequel. So now I don't want to. So before we get to the final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings, though, we're talking about this because this was an allegedly cursed movie. So what are the curses associated with the Omen? Because I can't imagine that there would be anything wrong with you know movies about the Antichrist. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, just like with a lot of these movies, is what you'll find is that there's, you know, they have a lot of bad stuff that supposedly happened in the um you know behind the scenes thing so i'm just going to kind of go through them here as far as stuff that i've read online and so for w- w- one of the first ones that i come up with was the designer of the movie john richardson was in a car accident that decapitated his passenger just like the scene in the omen mm-hmm. so apparently um yeah bad car accident and the guy he was with ended up getting decapitated so very much like what had happened with the uh, photographer and the one of the uh, another one was uh, we didn't really bring it up in the review, but there was a scene in the Omen where uh, the mom takes Damien out to the zoo, and the animals end up going crazy. The giraffes run away, the baboons start attacking the car, and what happened was the animal trainer that was hired to keep the cast and crew safe during the baboon scene ended up getting killed by a tiger. So um, maybe it was Carolyn Baskins that caused that. I don't know. A little uh, Tiger King <laughs> reference there for you, but, uh, very, very creepy in itself to think about how that happened. But then again, you look at it and it's like, he's an animal trainer. He's probably around a lot of dangerous animals. 
I mean, that would almost be like a pilot ending up dying in a plane crash. It's like it kind of goes with the territory. But speaking of plane crashes, there was apparently three planes that were struck by lightning during the production of this on three separate occasions. So that's pretty crazy. I don't like to fly. That's very well known about me is I hate flying, but I've flown probably a couple hundred times and I have never been in a plane that has been struck by lightning. So to think that that happened to three planes during the production of this movie is that's got to be a billion to one. So there is that. And then one of the other ones that I thought was really, really interesting here. I mean, there's other ones here, like some people that were in Ireland at the time were close to IRA explosions that, you know, I really wouldn't put that with a curse. That's more political stuff that was going on at the time. But there was something that I saw and it was on shutter. Shutter had a documentary about the omen and some of the curses and apparently there was a plane that Gregory Peck was supposed to get on. And this plane took off. He did not end up going on it. And the plane ended up getting uh, hitting a bunch of birds as it took off and then crashing into a car. The car that it actually was the wife and uh, son of the pilot. So, again, just one of these things where it's like, oh, that's you know, a, a little bit creepy here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you, you call those curses or confirmation biases, one way or the other. But holy cow, man! Like that—that is—that well, and again, this is why you shouldn't mess with the Ouija board, kids. Like we—we've been taught this for life. The one last thing here that some people put in there is, uh, unfortunately, uh, Gregory Peck, uh, his son, he had shot himself, uh, committed suicide. But that was two months before the filming of the movie. I know they said that that kind of coincided with the time that Gregory Peck had picked, you know, had chosen to do this movie. But again, I think it's one of those unfortunate consequences and you know it's just something i don't really believe had anything to do with a curse or something but it is when you when you look at a lot of the stuff here i mean there, there is a lot of stuff here that has happened and i think it'd be kind of interesting as we go through these other movies just to kind of see how they kind of level up against each other and to see you know which one we think would actually be the more cursed movie and i'm just saying curse with a quotation mark so Exactly. Well, for this one, though, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Nick, what are yours for The Omen? Oh, for me, it's an extra large popcorn. Uh, I don't give these out very much, and I just think that this movie just is one of the best horror movies ever made. I think that it's a very much a product of its time, and it's a product of its time much like Jaws was a product of its time, and it just makes it that much better because it makes the plot that much more believable. It just adds that 70s aesthetic. 70s movies have that really weird feel to them. You know what I mean? Where it's like they're, they don't feel low budget, but they don't have that gloss that movies in the 80s and 90s would eventually develop. It's very, very raw filmmaking, but very polished raw filmmaking, if that makes sense. And I think it's just when you add up everything together, the acting in this movie, the plotting of this movie, the score of this movie, and just solid effects for that time, it just is one of these movies that I just put as like one of my top probably three or four horror movies and definitely in my top 20 movies of all time. It's just it's a fantastic movie all around in a movie where if you haven't seen it, you're really missing out on a movie that I put on the level of something like The Godfather or, you know, other, you know, Dog Day Afternoon and these other movies that I just feel are classics of the time. Yeah, Nick, I'm going to join you in that extra large popcorn. This movie totally holds up still works and even if you don't believe in any of it any of the religious parts of it or any of the curses or any of that you're just in for a good movie a good thriller and a good i mean i don't know that it's a scare as much as it is an unnerving film and it's one that 
again, on rewatch, it just gets more unnerving. And that's the real testament to something that is a classic. And The Omen is absolutely a classic and has earned that reputation. Again, we talked about the score, the, you know, the way it was shot by Donner, the actors here, everything about this completely and totally works. So extra large popcorn as well from me for The Omen. So Nick, why don't you tell people the other two cursed films? We, we kind of hinted around at what they might be here, but what are our other two in our cursed retrospective? Well, the next one we're going to do is we're going to do The Exorcist. Um, it's a movie that's, you know, right during this time and has had a lot of interesting uh, happenings that have happened, you know, either during the production and after the production. And I think it's just one of those movies that's going to be really fun to talk about. And, of course, it's got some other sequels, too, that we can mention at the end. And the go within the same vein, the last movie we're going to talk about is Steven Spielberg's Cross that out, Toby Hooper's uh, <laughs> uh, Poltergeist, uh, which also had a lot of strange stuff happening during the making of it as well as after. And also had some sequels there that we can talk about at the end that weren't as good. So it's kind of a nice little one, two, three shot here of what I consider to be quintessential horror movies that also had some really, really interesting uh, events happening uh, throughout the filming and after. Can't wait to talk about both of those with you in the coming weeks here. Folks, you can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe and download the show, Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. You can also follow the show's social media, at filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram, and filmstrippodcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.